Let me ask you to turn your attention to God's Word. We're going to be moving this morning from Matthew chapter 22. I am going to invite you to go to that text because we'll be referring to it throughout the sermon, and I think that it will be something you'll want to visit again with me. So Matthew chapter 22, of course, we're dealing with the parable of the wedding banquet. That's the first book in the New Testament, the first gospel in the New Testament. We've been in this series, as you see, talking about the various kingdom parables. And you may know that parables are found in what's called the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are three gospels that are similar in type, and they are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But then the gospel of John does not include any parables. Uh, It is full of long diatribes, long narratives of Jesus' teaching that we call discourses. So parables are very, very unique to the scriptures of the synoptics. And what's interesting about it is that a lot of people think that Jesus was teaching by parables, and he certainly did. But it's interesting that Jesus did not begin teaching in parables until Matthew chapter 13, which is actually after the second Passover in his ministry, which means following the first half of his ministry had already been completed before he began teaching in parables. You may say, well, weren't there parables, though, in Mark chapter 4, also Luke chapter 10? Mark 4 is very early in the gospel, right? But you've got to remember that Mark uh, begins, most of Mark's discussion uh, it, it involves the, the latter part of Jesus' ministry. So he fast-forwards to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and then by chapter 4, he's already passed halfway through Jesus' ministry. So it's very interesting the way the parables take place. And uh, it's, it's just a very interesting thing, so I'm thrilled to be able to be in these discussions. So that leads to the question, though, what are parables exactly? Well, parables we know are, are memorable, lifelike stories with hidden meanings. They are, interestingly, stories told to mean something else. In other words, what the story is talking about is actually not what the parable actually means to say. These are similes, and they're similes because the Bible says the kingdom of God is like. Anytime you see the phrase is like, that is a simile. Uh, They are metaphorical stories that contain spiritual riddles. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus has just begun speaking in parables, and he makes this amazing pivot in his ministry where before that he's speaking in very pronounced tones. He's speaking in very didactic, straightforward teaching. And then all of a sudden, he just pops off starting doing parables. And instantly, you see in verse 10, you can look there, and his parables, his, his disciples say, hey, what, what's going on here? Why well, all of a sudden the switch? What's this, what's this new thing you're doing? And he says there that, that essentially that parables have embedded spiritual secrets that God only wants people who have a teachable heart to understand. So he was giving parables and actually in order to conceal the truth to some and reveal the truth to others. So what is the kingdom of God if these are the kingdom parables? Well, the kingdom of God is the idea that God intends to expand His rule, His dominion, His glory, and His sovereignty in the world through the gospel and often through believers. Now, there are about 40 parables in the Bible, and they are classified by type. And one of those types, as we know, are kingdom parables. And kingdom parables, when you go to interpret Scripture, parables are notoriously hard to 
to interpret because parables are not written in such a way that you would do a a verse-by-verse analysis because they are not written in what you might call a historical grammatical kind of way in the sense that, now we do interpret them in a historical grammatical way, but the point is that, that parables are not actual historical events. They are stories. So because they are a different genre, a different type of literature, you have to interpret them differently. And that's where people get off a little bit. And they begin to assign way too many specific features to individual parables, and that becomes problematic. And if you're not careful, you can misinterpret Scripture. So you were to ask the question, okay, so, so what is the governing theme? In other words, if I'm going to interpret a parable, and especially kingdom parables, what is the governing theme, the thing that I have to remember when I approach that in order to make sure I don't get off track? And the theme is essentially this, that all kingdom parables are about the gospel. And so the gospel should shine through in every kingdom parable. And that certainly includes the parable today, the parable of the wedding banquet. So what is the parable of the wedding banquet about? Well, it's speaking about wrong human responses to God's actions. What I will call wrong responses to divine initiative. In other words, God is doing something in these parables. He's He's doing something, but people get it wrong. They misunderstand. They misinterpret. By the way, isn't that human life? God's doing something. You know, you're like, hey, what's happening here? God, what are you doing? I don't completely understand. And we misinterpret what God is doing. And sometimes you miss God altogether, right? And then later on, you look back and say, wait a minute. What, what, was, what was happening back there? And then you realize what you thought was God being unfaithful to you. What you thought was God forgetting about you. What, what you thought was God leaving you hanging. Can I get a witness out there? Is anyone with me on this? What you thought was God leaving you hanging. Instead, he was there all the time. And that's what this is really all about. So the parable of the wedding banquet is about how people then and now, them then, you and me now, wrongly respond to Jesus in the gospel. For that reason, I've entitled this talk, How Not to Respond to God and the Gospel. But that then begs the question, doesn't it? Okay, what exactly is the gospel? And I want to spend a few minutes unpacking this because I fear that on one hand, if we don't understand the gospel, then it's, it's, it's certain that we will miss the point of this sermon. But also, if we don't understand the gospel we will miss the point of the New Testament. If we don't understand the gospel, we will miss the point of the Christian life. We'll just miss it. So I want to spend a few moments talking about that. What is the gospel? Well, it's incredibly important that we as believers know how to answer that question. In other words, I think that instantly, as soon as someone says, what is the gospel? We need to be able to instantly spit it out because it's important for us to intimately know what the gospel is. I fear, personally, that our familiarity with the word, you know, you're around church, like, oh, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. The familiarity with the word sometimes makes us unfamiliar. And we say, wait a minute now, what is that again now? Have I got this? Even right now, you might be saying, wait, have I got this? What's the gospel again now? And we're going to do this. And what I want to do is to make sure that we don't get fuzzy on the gospel. Believers have to be crystal clear and crisp in their understanding about what the gospel is. So I want to start with here what you see, the the Sunday school explanation. And and we're we're going to call this spiritual milk. In other words, if we were going to sort of take the elementary approach and say, look, what's the bottom line? What's the most irreducible, simple version of the gospel? What is the point of the gospel? 
The gospel is the good news. That's what the word means, as you know. That people can be made right with God. That people can have a personal relationship with God. How? By their belief in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And the assumption here is that everyone needs to be right with God. Everyone needs to be at peace with God. And that's how it works. So the gospel is what makes personal salvation possible. A lot of people are like, salvation, what's, what's it mean? People talk about being saved. What's, what's all that about? In other words, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, makes it possible for us to live in a harmonious relationship with God in order to be saved. What's, what's it mean? What's a saved thing? To be saved meaning to be spiritually safe and spiritually secure for now and throughout eternity. It's how we have abundant life now. Salvation is not just about the later thing. It's not just about when we go to heaven, right? Salvation is about abundant life now, John 10, 10, and eternal life later, John 3, 16. Let's go a little deeper. Let's take now, we're going from Sunday school experience to the seminary experience. I mean, we have to bring in some seminary, right? This This is all free, by the way, right? So the seminary experience, in other words, if we were going to go from spiritual milk to spiritual meat, someone's like, man, i got to get fed sometime. Okay, here's the spiritual feeding. We're going to go for a deep dive here. The gospel, literally, again, the good news, is that a person is made right with God. What's the theological term? Reconciled. What does reconciled mean? It means an end to hostility and the beginning of peace in a relationship. That's what the pastor was talking about last week, about being forgiven. When we are forgiven, we are reconciled. We, the reconciliation process at least begins. So through the gospel, reconciliation, the end of hostility, the beginning of peace between us and God is established. How? How does this happen? What happens, the Scriptures say, first of all, by grace alone. What's God's grace? Grace is God giving you and me something we do not deserve. Grace is God's unmerited and unearned favor. The gospel says we should be, we must be, in fact, you must be reconciled to God, but not because we deserve it, not because we have earned it, but because of the kindness of God. So salvation, being saved, is by grace alone. And that's why the great reformers call it um, sola gracia, that is, grace alone, only grace. But it's not only by grace alone, it's also through faith alone. How are we saved again? We are saved by grace, unmerited favor, by grace alone, through faith alone. What do you mean faith? Faith in faith? No, not faith in faith. Not your faith. Your faith doesn't save you. It's your faith in Christ. It's Christ that saves you, not your faith. So I'm saying we believe on Christ, and then God then counts that as righteousness. The gospel, the good news, is that we can be saved. We can be made right with God through faith alone. And what does saving faith look like, by the way? Well, Mark 1.15 talks about it. Jesus himself says what? He says, repent and believe in the gospel. That's what faith is. Faith means faith only in Christ. Uh, Faith does not mean faith plus the sacraments. Faith does not mean faith plus a religious figure. 
Faith does not mean faith plus. It's not faith plus our personal acts of righteousness in hopes that God will somehow accept us. Christ's forgiveness is free, and we get Christ's forgiveness by asking, not earning. We get Christ's salvation as a gift, not as a compensation for our efforts. So, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, this is where we're going to go a little bit deeper, so strap in, put the six-way seatbelt on, because we're going to use a few 50-cent words here, because they will help us understand at a more important level what the gospel really is all about. The gospel requires that we be reconciled through Christ. In other words, here's the key. God wants us to become aware of truth. He wants us to know certain things. In other words, salvation, as we grow as believers, it's not meant to be just devotion. You should know something too. So in other words, God wants us to know, to believe, and to accept. You see the difference there? That's important. What does He want us to know? He wants us to know these things, believe them. He wants us to personally understand, listen, and affirm certain truths and embed those truths into our convictions. That's what it's about. What are those truths? Well, that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. Now, what's interesting about this, there's lots of research that's been going on about this, and they say that somewhere in the 40 percentile of people who consider themselves believers, that self-acclaim to be believers, 40-something percent of Americans who call themselves a believer believe that Jesus sinned while on earth. Now, the Bible says that Jesus was sinless. Listen, if you are sinful, you can't be sinless. If you're not sinless, you can't be a Savior because the Savior had to save us from sin. Does that make sense? So it's, it's not only important, it's absolutely necessary that Jesus did not sin. If Jesus sinned, then we're, we're wasting our time this morning. So the thing is that, that Jesus is a Savior. We are also to understand and affirm that Jesus died for us. That what? That through death on a cross, on a crucifixion, on a, on a Roman cross somewhere at or about 30 A.D., God placed His divine judgment on the Son of God, Jesus, His only begotten Son, and that that substitutionary death satisfied, this is the key phrase, the, the word we use in theology is propitiated, that is, He had through Jesus' death, the righteous satisfaction of God's anger. It's when God's anger, which was righteous, was all of a sudden finally assuaged. God was like, yes, it is finished. Now you have dealt with the problem at a fundamental level. And through Christ's sacrificial death, watch this, and us knowing that, believing it, and affirming it, and receiving it personally, saying, that's for me. I believe that Christ died for me, not that I died, believe that Jesus died, I believe that he died for me and took my place. That's a substitutionary death. And God wants us to understand that. And that, watch this, that the substitutionary death, don't miss this, makes us at one with God. Now, this is interesting. If you look at the screen, you'll see the word atonement. When God saves you, you are atoned for. What's interesting about the word atonement is what? It has the words at one. You say, what's atonement mean? That's what it means. 
Atonement means that we are made at one with God, meaning we are finally in harmony with God. We are finally in spiritual unity with God, and now finally we have the opportunity to be at peace with God. So God expects us to know and to believe that Jesus, though dead in the flesh, and though his death was real, don't miss this, it was not final. And death was unable to cause the body of Jesus to completely deteriorate because his divine power, the fact that he is and was the Son of God, his divine power literally invigorated, enlivened his body. It quickened him in such a way that his divine power actually and literally gave rebirth to his dead flesh. And that Jesus literally, physically, not just spiritually, not like this Jehovah's Witnesses say, not like so many other religions say, not just a spiritual resurrection. No, the man walked out of the grave. He was risen. And of course, that's what we celebrate at Easter. And because of that, that's, watch this, that spiritual vitality, the Bible says that Jesus told them after he ascended, he goes, look, go and pray in Jerusalem, and then I will tell you what to do at a certain time. And then the Bible says at Pentecost, God poured out his spirit on all flesh. In other words, everyone who believed then received the same Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus. He poured it out on all believers so that when you receive Christ, at that instant, the Spirit of God, the living Spirit of God, literally enters your life. It regenerates you, meaning regened. You literally become a new creation, a new life. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new in your spirit. And then someday, through the power of God in your heart, through the Spirit of God, He will raise up your flesh. And the Bible says, then you will defeat the last enemy of death. That's pretty glorious. That's not a bad deal, all right? So that's what the gospel is. If you want to know what is the gospel, that is the gospel. That is salvation. And we need to know that and believe that. So the kingdom of God, let's now, now that we get it, now it's okay, what's this text about? It's a beautiful text. The gospel is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. It's what Jesus is talking about here in this parable we're going to read. In the remaining time, we're going to discuss the issue of what not to do about God and the gospel. Wrong responses to divine initiative. Just listen as I read along here. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Remember, he had been doing it since Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven, sometimes called the kingdom of God. In Matthew, he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. Jews, Jews didn't want to hear the word God, so they, he used the, the euphemism of heaven. In the other gospels, he says the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. Jesus spoke to them in parables saying the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field. Another went off to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. 
He sent his army and destroyed their murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners now and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But the king came in to see the guest. He noticed there was a man not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? But the man was speechless. And the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For, read it with me, many are invited, but few are chosen. So, it's, it's really an amazing, amazing discussion. Jesus is teaching. He begins this parable uh, about the gospel. Remember, the gospel is what empowers the kingdom of God. The gospel is God's plan to expand His kingdom, His rule, His authority, as I've said. His dominion on earth. Through how? Through changing the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. In verse 2, we see there, if you look at the text, we see that the king has prepared this glorious banquet wedding for his son. And listen, you've seen nice weddings. I mean, think in your mind about the nicest wedding you've been to. It may have been your wedding. probably was. You've been to this amazing wedding, but now think back and think of other glorious weddings that you've attended. Now, think of the cost of some weddings. We need, we're going to need some, uh, some smelling sauce to get some of the men up, you know, because men are going to pass out into the aisles like, oh yeah, I remember that. So these weddings cost a lot. And Think about the fact that, that, that weddings do not have to cost a lot to be great, but money can make a wedding an amazing experience, of course. So I began to do some research. I said, what were the most expensive weddings of all time? And it was a very interesting thing, to be honest with you. Here's what I found. On one wedding, the wedding of uh, uh, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, after the wedding vows were completed, they, th they lit off fireworks. And just for fireworks at that wedding, there was $20,000 of fireworks. That's a pretty big gig. Beyond that, Catherine Zeta-Jones, you know, she's the one married to Michael Douglas. Her tiara at her wedding cost a reported $300,000. That's a lot. Then there's, how can we not talk about Kim Kardashian? You talked about Kim Kardashian once, so I can talk about Kim Kardashian. So Kim Kardashian's marrying Kanye, right? He's got his Yeezy on. You know, I'm, you know, he's all, there he is. She paid a reported $500,000 for her wedding gown. Crazy. It cost the Beatle Paul McCartney $2 million to get married back in 2002. Three million. The most expensive wedding dress of all times, ready for this, was one million dollars. Actually, north of one million dollars. Amazing stuff. I think they said it had six layers of petticoats. It was amazing stuff. Then there was the 
wedding of Charles and Diana. Some of you woke up like I did to see that, right? You woke up in the middle of the night. Remember that? You're like, or, I mean, it was like so early in the morning. You're like, I've got to see this. And you remember the revelry. You remember how amazing it was. It was honestly, it was magical. I mean, even I was a young boy and I was still sort of amazed at it. It was, it was amazing. The wedding of Charles and Diana cost $48 million. If you were to translate that to today's money, wait for it, 110 mil. Crazy. Now, those would be amazing weddings, but follow the story here. This is a king in the story. This king represents God. This God, this king has unlimited wealth. Money is no object. No expense whatsoever will be spared. It would be a feast for the eyes. The, the wedding, listen, would have the best food that any person at the event had ever consumed. Everything would be perfect in every way. So in verse 3, we continue reading, and the, the king has, now watch this, has previously invited these people. You can't understand this unless you know the, the way that culture worked back then. Back then, they would invite someone to a wedding, and then the person would RSVP, and then they would begin to make preparations so they could have enough things on hand. And you've got to remember now, this is the, the lack of, of refrigeration, uh, limitations on storage, the, the time required to gather exotic foods that would be needed for this grand event, and, and to, to gather such food for such an enormous audience, it would take some time. So they would send out this, this invitation, and then the people would come back with an RSVP. Yes, I'll be there. Now, according to custom, this is critical, those who received an invitation would come. It's not like, hey, honey, what do you think? Do we have anything to do with that? We have something to do with that, don't we? You know what I'm saying? That's not the way it worked. No. If you were invited, you went. Every person then has RSVP'd. Remember now, now food was scarce back then. So getting a meal was a big deal. But here we're talking about good food. And besides that, weddings were these, these amazing social events. It was the community event of the season, or more than that, really. And it was unthinkable to incline, decline an invitation like that. So if you were invited, you went. But wait, now we're talking about the king that's invited you. In those days, if a king sent an invitation... There was literally and actually no reason that one could rightfully decline. No one would miss the banquet because it represented the king and his to-be-coronated son and the bride, often because they were marrying different people. It would involve heads of state from so many other places. And you were going because leaders of heads of state were going. And check this out. It was considered treason not to attend a wedding of a king. Which meant, unlike now, uh, treason would mean, hey, you get uh, 15 days in jail. No, no. Back then, listen, treason meant certain death. So here in the parable, you have these previously invited guests. They've RSVP'd, but now they literally, the Scriptures say, quote, refused to come. I mean, at least make a good excuse. Right? I got a hangnail. I mean, I... You know, I woke up on the wrong side of bed. No, it was like, I, I just don't want to come. It was the greatest offense imaginable. 
Those, listen, when Jesus said these words, this parable was so stunning, the people literally groaned when He talked about it. They were staggered. They, they, they felt cold chills go over their body. They literally felt fearful for this situation. Unthinkable. Unforgivable. The disrespect, the dishonor. It was like, this can't happen. So they're literally on the edge of their seat. Well, what's the meaning of that? Well... The king in the story is God, of course. He is honoring his son and the son's bride. And who is that? Well, you may remember in the Old Testament, the bride was often considered Israel, the nation of Israel back then in the Old Covenant. And then God was the the bridegroom. So God is joined with Israel of the first covenant. If you please, his first marriage, if I can say that, right? And you got the new covenant, you get what I'm saying. So so he has this first marriage going on, and then God has this son, Jesus in this case, and they are now, he is being coronated, he is being established as what will be the king of kings. And his people, in this case the Jewish people, who had, were his own flesh and blood by the way, who had originally said, I want to be a part of this covenant, I want to be a part of this marriage, that's the old covenant, the Ten Commandments. And they had promised to honor and obey God, but now the Jews were rejecting it. So Jesus is using this parable, literally speaking it to people, condemning them for rejecting Him as Savior, the King of the Jews, whom they would later crucify. And He's essentially saying that not believing in Me is an act of treason. So what's the application for us? How should we not respond to God in the Gospel? Don't refuse God's invitation and reject God's incarnation. God's people, the Jews, had rejected God's invitation to them and the incarnation was the incarnation, God becoming flesh, Jesus coming to the world in the person of the Messiah, the Christ. And in this parable, what's happening, listen to this, by extension, God is saying to you, to me, to any person that has ever lived, He's essentially saying, Do not reject my son, the incarnate God. Don't reject Christ. That's the first truth. So now in verse 4, this parable continues. The people are literally riveted. They're just like, I can't believe what, what this man is saying. The gracious now, watch this, but the offended king, but he's gracious. He sends out the servants again to the people. He's like, okay, let's send some other people out there. He's giving these rebellious citizens these subjects a second chance to avoid being charged with treason. He's given them a second chance not to be condemned to death. He reminds them, look now, the dinner's been prepared. Oxen and fatted cattle, the Bible says, will be served. Now, why did he reference both of these? Isn't that sort of the same thing? Well, not exactly. An ox is a castrated male bull and This meat in particular was known to be very, very smooth in texture. Smoother, better, more delicious than regular cattle. And when it was, they say when it was prepared in the right way, literally that it literally exploded with flavor in a person's mouth. So they had that. And then on the other hand, the Bible says that they also had fattened cattle. Now, what we're talking about here, of course, we're talking about the best of the best. We're talking about marbled beef to ensure great taste. I know something about steaks, okay? I mean, you're talking about my expertise now. Discipleship, I know a little bit about. Steak, I got it, all right? 
So we're talking here, the people are being served prime cuts. We're talking prime rib. We're talking strip steak. We're talking a little bit of Mexican. They want a little bit of, you know, shanks, you know, steak down there. We're talking, you know, beef stew. We're talking prime rib, the whole thing, filet. Things that were so good, the best, that it would make going to Ruth's Chris or the Chop House look like cheap fast food. So he made this invitation. And keep in mind, there's great urgency in the text here. As Jesus is talking, there's profound urgency. And imagine back then that you got this huge crowd. You, you wanted to honor and you wanted to impress them. The king's reputation was on the line. He cared about these people. They were his countrymen. They were his flesh and blood. So he, he didn't want them to be executed. He, he, he knew that they were his countrymen. They were in covenant with him. And, and he wanted to... To, to know that I want to provide you this meal that you can never provide for yourself. I mean, it, it would be impossible to have this experience in your entire life. This experience is one just like your, your favorite trip that you've ever taken. It's like, it, it's a trip that you will never forget. It will be the greatest memory of your life that you always look back on. And he wanted to provide that for these people. So it was, it was not just, by the way, a lot of times you think, oh, a wedding man, okay, so you missed the meal. What's the big deal? Not exactly. This was an enormous feast. It was a party that never ended. It was not uncommon for these to last for several days, but with the king, it could literally last up to a week. Now imagine this scene. We're talking, we're talking an ongoing party. We're talking vibrant, colorful outfits, literally. We're talking special performance. We're talking dancing. We're talking about bringing talent in from around the known world. The celebration is here in the bridegroom's home. As the guest, you are now invited to stay in the royal castle. No longer are you sleeping on the ground. No longer are you sleeping on some cheap uh, bed of straw. Now you're in the king's house, hanging out in the king's bedroom practically. And then there you are. You're in the royal castle. You're partying late into the night. You're, you're resting in the heavenly bed like you got at the Westin. Then you're here on this this sleeping in, get up whenever you want, do absolutely no work for an entire week, and an all-expense-paid trip to the sandal of sandal of sandals, and a week of partying, meal after meal, all you can eat, the best food available. That's what they were missing. But the catch was there were no crispers. What's, what's, what's all the, the, the intensity of this? Well, the problem was there was no fridges around. There were no crispers that kept the, 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 the asparagus fresh. You know, I mean, we're talking about no Vulcan stoves to, to cook meat at scale. There were no tremendous, enormous vats like you have in the back of the restaurant where you have these enormous vats that have hundreds of gallons of soup. You know what I'm talking about, some of you that worked at Red Lobster. You know what I'm talking about. So they, here they didn't have this stuff. They're having to do all this stuff by hand. So here they are, uh, no microwaves to reheat the food. And, and there's not adequate drinks, so they can't just get water. They, they get water plus wine. That means they have to have gallons, hundreds of gallons, maybe tons of wine. That takes time to go harvest those grapes. It takes time to feed and slaughter those animals. It takes time to prepare those animals. It takes time to travel far and wide to, to fish for exotic seafood. You follow what I'm saying? This is a big deal. But it was worth it because it was for the king. Except here. The tense of the language here in verses 4 and 5 
Listen, it, it, the language actually, you can't see it in the English, but it implies that literally the servants went back again and again and again, pleading with the people, come to the wedding. It wasn't like a one-off thing. Hey, you guys, you'd like to come, right? No? Okay, well, I'll see you later. No, they come, they implored them, they entreated them time again and again. Please come to this great wedding, but they didn't. They were asking them to come to the wedding as if a person would ask someone to come to a wedding that knew you were going to die and be executed if you didn't make it. That's how serious it was. So it was the best place in town. The RSVPs had come in, but the people were so apathetic and offensive that they went on to another farm and went back to work at their business. I mean, in other words, they would literally rather do manual labor alone than take the vacation of a lifetime and spend all this time with family and friends and the cultural event of the decade at the king's expense. And some of them turned to violence against the king's servants. The Bible says that literally they turned on them and murdered them for doing nothing more than being messengers. Nothing more, watch this, than asking them to do what they had already agreed to do. They had been killed. What's going on here? Well, the fact that, that what we see here is that in the Old Covenant, the people mistreated the prophets. That's what Jesus was getting at. He says, look guys, you mistreated the prophets too. They sent, were sent by God with the message. And you mistreated them and you killed some. We know the Scriptures say that that Jezebel killed several of God's prophets there in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. And then they put out a bounty on the head of Elijah and Elisha. We know that Isaiah potentially got killed. We know that John the Baptist was beheaded. We know that Zechariah was probably murdered, maybe at the altar. So this abuse leads the king to unleash his wrath and he destroyed the murderers and burned their city. I'm not saying that this was what it was about. But basically, what we see is that 40 years later, Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is burned to the ground by, German, by, by Roman soldiers. So what's the uh, application of that is that don't ignore God's message and don't insult God's messenger. We live in a day where more of our missionaries are being killed and martyred than any time in human history. And God's word and God's messenger are being crushed. And God is telling them, be careful. Don't do that because God is sending people, sending us to tell them. And God says, listen to this message. Now, <clears throat> continue on here. And, 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 and what we have is that, that we have this, this section where now God is loving these people immeasurably. He has lavishly provided to them, uh, to them for salvation. They, we are looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. God has given all this great generosity. And the, the messengers are doing what the king told them to do. And here we have them make one last appeal to a new group. What, look at this. It says here that, that, that these people were invited did not deserve to come. You see that in verse 9? So the servants went to the street corners, even outside town, to where the uncivilized people lived. In other words, here it says, literally it says, go to anyone you can find. It was an indiscriminate invitation to anyone. And finally the hall was filled with people. 
And they were finally able to enjoy that. And so God is now seeing that all these people are enjoying this amazing meal. He's like, oh, this is fantastic. But then he spots a guy in the back. Now, he's thrilled that the place is full. But then the king sees this guy. He's like, what's the deal with this guy not having the, the, the wedding clothing on? Back then, at amazing weddings like that, the king would often, watch this, provide you clothing to wear. Because a lot of people didn't have nice threads he said, you know, I don't want people to feel that way. So they gave them amazing clothes to wear for the wedding. Just like sometimes you have a choir and they'll all have choir robes. It was sort of like that. So what happens, though, is this guy says, look, the king says to the guy, look, wear your wedding clothes. And the guy, literally the Bible says, is speechless. He didn't have anything to say. And he wanted to freestyle it. And basically what happened there was this, that the person wanted to approach God and the gospel on his own terms. He wanted just to do what he wanted to do. And God was saying, look, I will invite you to my wedding. I want to invite you to be with me, but you do it on my terms, not on your own terms. You have to be, what's this, clothed in Christ. You have to take Christ on. So that's really what was happening there. And we see in that truth this very important idea don't choose personal autonomy, your will over God's will, and abuse God's authority. Instead, the final truth, the Bible says that many are called, but few are chosen. In other words, what is the proper response? We've seen a lot of the bad responses. What is the proper response to the gospel and to God? Believe it and receive it. And that's what we see there at the end of that passage is that the people believed and received. And if you're listening today, that's God's message to us. If you're unsure about where you stand with the gospel, you're unsure about where you stand with God, God invites you to believe and to receive. Close, let's close in prayer and please bow your head with me. God, we thank you so much for your great love for us. Lord, we learned today about the gospel, about what it is. We've learned so much about about the way we should handle your invitation. So God, in this invitation right now, you invite us to yourself. Lord, there's someone in this room, certainly, many probably, who aren't sure where they stand with you, Lord. And we will be here after the service at the front right to, to dialogue with them, to help them. We are literally steps away from salvation right here at the front. So Lord, I pray that we would all look to you, find out where we stand with you, Lord, and enter into this great wedding celebration, Lord. We thank you. For your word, we thank you for your truth. We ask it in Christ's name.